0: You're listening to Rough Translation on NPR. I'm Gregory Warner. Today we are dropping something very special in the feed for you. It's an excerpt from an episode from NPR's new series, Louder Than a Riot, about the intersection of hip-hop and the justice system. And we wanted you to hear it not only because it is an incredibly riveting tale, but also because it reminds us of something we are always trying to do here at Rough Translation, exploring how words and ideas cross context and are translated, or mistranslated, or even manipulated to take on different meanings. Last week, we introduced you to Stella Nyanzi, a Ugandan activist sent to prison for the poem she posted about the country's president on Facebook Today, another story about someone's art being used against them in court. Now, just a note before we get any further, there is explicit language in this episode. It might not be the best listen with small kids or if you're at work. Louder Than a Riot follows the case of Mac Phipps, a rapper who was accused of shooting an audience member at a Louisiana club in 2001. Another man confessed to the crime, but when this episode picks up the story, Mac is in jail and waiting for trial. Mac had started his career as a politically conscious rapper, but switched his style and his persona when he joined the record label No Limit and took on the stage name, The Camouflage Assassin. Here's Louder Than a Riot hosts, Sidney Madden and Rodney Carmichael.
1: Mac's sitting in a jail cell. He's been charged with the murder of Baron Victor Jr., Even though someone else confessed to shooting Baron that night, Mac was the one headed to court to fight for his freedom.
2: But to understand what Mac was about to be up against next, we got to break down the history of rap lyrics being weaponized. Not by rappers dissing each other or talking slick on the mic, but by the criminal justice system policing black creativity. Ice-T, who's probably best known today for playing a cop on Law & Order SVU, See, he knows more about this than probably anybody. That's because back in the day, one of his songs triggered law enforcement all across the country.
3: Cop killer!
2: Yep, Cop Killer from Body Count. The metal band that Ice-T started fronting in the early 90s. And man, in 1992, the backlash over this song about one man's revenge fantasy to kill corrupt police officers. And it was huge. Both President George H.W. Bush and Vice President Dan Quayle condemned. It. News headlines were blowing up all over the place, questioning if rap was out of control.
1: Never mind the fact that this song was unmistakably heavy metal.
2: Yeah, just the fact that Body Count's lead singer was a known rapper, that was enough. Hey, whoa, whoa, Waters got to go.
4: Many of these people are policemen from around the country who want Warner Brothers Records to yank the album <laughs> Body Count off its store shelves.
5: New
4: York for week, police groups in Texas called for a boycott of governor, all products Alabama made by Time Warner. requested
5: that the song be
1: banned from store mm-hmm. shelves. Pressure from record label shareholders, boycotts from police unions, even death threats? It became too much. Ice-T told Time Warner to pull the record off the shelves. And mainstream America's fascination with and fear of gangster rap? It reached an all-time high.
5: The public outcry was, you know, just enormous. People were losing record contracts, boycotts were happening, and concerts were being canceled. That's
1: Carrie Fried. She's a psychology professor at Winona State University in Minnesota.
5: And it was just really apparent that it wasn't really just the content of the songs. People were reacting to these songs in a way that they weren't in other sort of genres or contexts. Back in 92,
1: Carrie was just starting in on her graduate studies, and she was about as far from an Ice-T fan as you can get. But something about the backlash to Cop Killer, it
5: jogged a memory from her childhood. My parents always listened to folk music, and there were always songs about killers and glamorizing them, you know, even creepy songs about people who killed sheriffs and sheriff deputies. And no one thought anything of it. You know, it was just a song.
2: She thought about one song in particular, a folk song that was a hit from the early 60s, Bad Man's Blunder by the Kingston Trio.
5: Three dorky white guys wearing plaid shirts and playing guitars. And they had this song about a guy who just, because he's feeling in a bad mood, he goes out and shoots a deputy sheriff and it's this weird, lighthearted little song.
4: Well, early one evening I was rolling around. I was feeling kind of mean.
6: I shot the deputy down.
5: It just kind of popped into my head when I was hearing all these negative reactions to the rap music of why, as a kid, did no one object to me listening to this song? So Carrie, she created a simple study. The lyrics were just, they were stuck in my head. So I uh, typed them up. Early one evening, I was strolling along. I was feeling kind of mean. I shot a deputy down. Stroll along home. I went to bed. I laid my pistol up under my head. And then, honestly, I Xeroxed the thing. Probably on departmental budget, I wasn't supposed to.
1: On half of the pages, Carrie wrote, this is a rap song. On the other half, this is a country song.
5: And the next page, I just had a series of questions. Is this song offensive? You know, should we ban this kind of song? Uh, would you let your kids listen to this kind of song? Does this kind of song pose a danger to society? Bang, you're dead. When subjects thought the song was a rap song, or when they associated it with a black artist... They were significantly more likely to say this poses a danger. You know, we should uh, ban these kinds of songs. I don't want my kids listening to it. If you said it was a country song or they were associated with a white artist, by and large, people didn't have a problem with it.
2: I'm Rodney Carmichael.
1: I'm Cindy Madden. From NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. Where
2: well, we trace a collision of rhymes punishment in America.
1: In this episode, we look at a phenomenon that's become common practice in courtrooms all over the country, the use of rap lyrics as state's evidence to convict the artist of crimes.
2: And for Mac, it becomes the ultimate irony when his imagination leads to his incarceration. For
3: me, it was just like, damn, I've lived my whole life trying to stay out of jail so I can pursue my dreams, and here it is, my dream was being used against me in court.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Yogi Tea. We know that sometimes finding a moment for yourself isn't so simple, but self-care doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a warm, comforting cup of Yogi Honey Lavender Stress Relief Tea. With soothing aromatics like lavender, chamomile, and lemon balm, this relaxing herbal tea blend encourages you to take a moment to pause, step away from the chaos of the day, and sip your way to a more stress-free state of mind. Find your flow with Yogi T.
2: Max trial began on September 10, 2001, just one day before the twin towers fell in Manhattan. And Aaron Zachmeyer, he was a 26-year-old reporter for the Slidell Century News at the time when he got a call about the case from a prosecutor in the DA's office.
6: He considered it a really high-profile case and one that was going to be very easy for his office. I don't remember the exact words, but he said the defendant is named Mac the Camouflage Assassin. Slam dunk. He says everybody in town was talking about the case. And they seem to view it as New Orleans spilling into their quiet, calm communities. Slidell liked to think of itself as a sleepy little town where you could escape from the chaos of New Orleans.
2: The trial took place in the St. Tammany Parish Courthouse.
6: The courtroom was packed. Um, it was a low, dingy 1960s building. I have a picture in my head of wood
2: paneling. Max's brother Chad remembers how much support Mac had packed inside that courtroom. My uncles and aunts and grandparents and parents and elderly people who, most of them ministers and, and people in the church, and we were sitting like five or six rows back in the, in the courtroom. First day was jury selection.
6: They threw out anyone who had family members who had who had been arrested. They threw out anyone who expressed any kind of negative opinion about police. It ended up being an all-white jury.
2: Not exactly Max peers, but even in the position he was in, Mac was prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't
3: think that these people would just like you know, we're white, he's black. Uh, we hate him, so we're going to send him to prison. No. I just think that some people tend to have such a favorable, it's kind of like a childlike favorability of the, of the police that I don't think they think, ah, hell, I'm going to just be wrong. I don't think that some people believe the police make mistakes.
2: And representing the state, was a prosecutor named Bruce Deering. He was aggressive. He was really confident in himself. The prosecutor laid out the case against Mack in the state's opening argument, reenacted here from court transcripts.
7: Murder, murder, kill, kill. Pull the trigger, put a bullet in your head. Those are some of the lyrics that this defendant chooses to rap when he performs. This is the self-proclaimed
6: camouflaged assassin. He pushed the assassin moniker over and over and over and over again. That was his main argument.
7: At the conclusion of this trial, I'm going to ask you to rip the camouflage from this assassin and reveal him as the killer that he is.
1: Matt couldn't believe what was happening.
3: For me, it was just like, damn. I've lived my whole life trying to stay out of jail so I can pursue my dreams. And here it is, my dream was being used against me in court. And I I felt kind of played because I was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute.
2: Yeah, and remember Mac, he switched his whole style up when he got with No Limit.
3: I used to rap about all kinds of stuff. I used to rap about trying to save the world. I used to rap about all types of stuff growing up, you know, and that was actually my favorite type of music. What they would call today uh, conscious hip-hop or whatnot. That was my favorite type of hip-hop. That's what I used to do that's what I was off, before I signed with No Limit. I didn't seem to be uh, able to break through back then with that. But here, I start making the type of music that's selling and all of a sudden this music is being used against me in court. And it's like, God damn.
1: So with no murder weapon and no physical evidence, the crux of the state's argument was about his lyrics.
6: I think they leaned on on the stage name, the Mac, the Camouflage Assassin, because it was so easy. And I imagine they thought that it was an easy way to scare the jury, to turn a person into into a monster. He did a good job.
1: In his closing argument, Bruce Deering leaned back into Max's lyrics again.
7: This defendant is the same man whose message, again, is murder, murder, kill, kill. You F with me, you get a bullet in your brain.
1: Max lawyers object and try to argue for a mistrial when the state uses his lyrics. They get denied.
7: You don't have to be a genius to figure out that one plus one equals two.
1: As the jury weighed the evidence, Mac's family waited.
6: Uh, There were lots of family members singing religious songs, uh, embracing each other, crying. It was very emotional.
1: Mac was charged with second degree murder, but the judge gave the jury the option to convict on a lesser charge of manslaughter if the crime was, quote, committed in sudden passion or heat of blood. Inside, the jury deliberated until close to midnight.
2: They had to weigh the evidence, the state's eyewitnesses, and Mac's Lyric's on one hand, versus Mac having no criminal record and another man confessing to the crime on the other.
1: When the jury came back, the verdict was guilty of manslaughter.
3: I was just numb. I was crying like I don't think I ever cried. I don't think I ever cried like that in my life. I just dropped my head tears blowing down my eyes. Like I was a kid again.
1: The jury count was 10 to 2.
2: Now, usually every juror needs to agree on a guilty verdict. But in 2001, Louisiana was one of only two states left in the country where jury verdicts did not have to be unanimous. What went through your mind when you heard the verdict being read?
0: Um, disbelief. I was angry because I shouted out in the court. uh, My son didn't do this. I kept screaming, "My son didn't do this." I couldn't believe it. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. But they didn't know Max, so you know, you almost want to shake their head and tell them, you know, he's not really like that. But you know, how can you change people's perspective of somebody when they're only going by what they hear?
3: I was like, maybe he'll give me ten years,
2: maybe. When it came time to sentence him, the judge said, after reviewing all the sentencing guidelines, I sentenced the defendant to 30 years hard labor.
3: Shit, that man said, 30 years hard labor. My mouth just flew wide open like, wow. I was 24 years old at the time. I was like, damn. I was just trying to hold everybody together. All my children was crying. I said, my son didn't do this. The person who did this is going to walk away a free man while my son has to bear his burden. You give somebody who don't have no police records 30 years? I couldn't figure that out. I I definitely couldn't figure that out.
2: Here's Mac's brother, Chad, again. The whole thing, looking back at it, was a sham trial from beginning to end. I was young at the time. I didn't know much about the courtroom. I thought there was actually justice in the courtroom. And... If you're not guilty, they set you free. Because cause in my mind at that time, I thought justice will prevail. I was sadly mistaken. I couldn't believe
3: it. And I went back to the jail when they brought me back. And I was just angry. And I was angry with God more than anything. I was angry. I was like, dude, how could you do this to me? And I think that night, I didn't believe in anything. I didn't believe in people no more. I didn't believe in the system anymore. I didn't believe in nothing. Everything was just dark. And I remember hearing the same song that uh, I heard in the squad car on my way to the court. The same song was playing on the radio. And that was uh, Lifetime by uh, Maxwell. Ah.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, WeTransfer. We all have doubts, but where do they belong? Are they simply to be surfaced and forgotten? WeTransfer believes your doubt needs a place where it can grow into something useful. And WeTransfer's set of tools can help you do just that by collecting, sketching, presenting, and sharing your thoughts with the world. It's where doubt transforms into ideas. Meet, paste, paper, and collect by WeTransfer. Go to toolstomoveideas.com to learn more.
0: Hey, I'm Gregory Warner, host of Rough Translation. We are back with our presentation of Lyrics on Trial from the podcast Louder Than a Riot.
4: Across the country, in an alarming rate, young men of color are having their rap lyrics introduced as evidence in criminal cases. Now,
2: Eric Nielsen studies African-American literature and hip-hop culture especially as it
4: intersects with policing. It is um, time and time again leading to convictions. Often when there is little other evidence, this is unfair, it is racist, and no other musical form, no other fictional form, musical or otherwise, is used like this um, in courts. Eric's been called by defense attorneys to testify in dozens of trials
2: all over the country, especially when rap lyrics get introduced as evidence.
1: And although he didn't work on Mac's trial back in the day, still, Eric says this case is one of the most egregious he's ever seen.
4: They relied on Mac Phipps' fictional persona um, as they tried him. They conflated the author with the character, and they did so intentionally, talking about him as the assassin, the camouflage assassin, which is, by the way, is a, a name he got from kung fu movies. They started bringing in his lyrics, murder, murder, kill, kill. Murder,
2: murder, murder, murder kill, 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 kill,
4: Murder, murder, kill, kill.
2: Of course, that's from the song with the same name. But the second half of the line, the prosecution quoted, you fuck with me, you get a bullet in your brain. Well, that's from a completely different song called Shell Shocked. The verse quoted, it's not even about Mac. It's about Mac's dad, Vietnam vet McKinley Phipps Sr. But peep this. The prosecution even changed the lyrics to make them sound self-incriminating. See, Mac actually never raps the words you fuck with me, you get a bullet in your brain. In fact, the prosecutor switches up the whole context. Take a listen. That's my daddy, he says. See, he's personifying his father's experiences as a veteran of the war in Vietnam. And then... Ten seconds later. You fuck with me,
3: he'll give you a bullet in your
4: brain. Uh, you fuck with me, he'll give you a bullet in your brain. Not only did they cherry pick lyrics, which is common in this, right? Just take a line, forget about all of the context. But in this case, they actually took lines from different songs changed them somewhat, and then put them together as if they had come from the same song. And and, and you know, in doing so, dramatically changed um, the meaning of the lyrics. And that was problematic because what we know um, is that the character that Mac presented in his lyrics had nothing to do with the person who authored them.
1: Not only that, the trial was taking place in September 2001 literally the week of the 9-11 attacks. If you looked at the front page of the Times-Picayune on September 19th, you'd have seen a large, grainy photo of Osama bin Laden, a report about the Bush administration's newly named War on Terror, and then a single headline at the bottom left corner reads, Rapper Identified as Killer at Concert. We talked about this with one of Mac's lawyers, Kevin Boshe, and he says this is one of the most difficult trials he's ever been through.
3: Doing anything different? No. I cannot see a more difficult scenario to try a homicide case with in America.
2: And here you have the prosecutor constantly referring to Mac as an assassin. Mac's team actually tried to get the case dismissed because the characterization, man, it was just too raw. But the judge overruled it. All he did,
3: however, was set the table for every other prosecutor in America to put rap culture on trial at every single opportunity. I cannot begin to tell you how many appeals I've handled since where the the, defendant gets convicted, not because the evidence is so strong, but because of what he decided to put in his social media, in his rap videos, in her rap videos, whatever.
2: This inherent bias against rap and the image that it conjures, is becoming a common weapon in a prosecutor's arsenal.
8: Almost daily, we continue to learn of new cases.
2: Yeah, Andrea Dennis, She knows all too well.
8: I am a professor of law at the University of Georgia Law.
2: Yeah, she's also a former assistant federal public defender and co-author, along with Eric Nielsen, of the book Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America.
8: Our research at present, um, we believe, has only revealed the tip of the iceberg.
2: Since 2006, they found more than 500 cases from almost every state. Man, that's a lot of rappers catching cases. But we ain't just talking professional rap stars when it comes to this stuff.
8: In the vast majority of these cases, it's your average, ordinary, uh, young Black or Latino man. Just ordinary, ordinary citizens.
2: You're jotting down lyrics in your journal? That could be used against you. Posting verses for the ground? Oh, that's admissible, bruh. Now, Andrea says there's a bunch of different ways that the government uses lyrics against defendants at trial.
8: One set of cases are those that are considered to be autobiographical or confessions.
2: Lyrics can even be used to prove gang membership or to show that someone is of dangerous or bad character. Sometimes the state argues that the actual lyrics are a threat. The lyrics themselves are essentially a crime. And of course, there are cases like Max.
8: In which the government says that the lyrics are indicative of an individual's intent or mindset or motive to commit the crime.
2: Now, this trend, according to Eric Nielsen, it's not disappearing anytime
4: soon. As a legal tactic, it's just too effective at persuading juries. I think one of the reasons why people um, are willing to read those lyrics as autobiography is because they map to commonly held stereotypes about the inherent criminality of young black and young hispanic men and so i think it becomes very easy for people to hear the lyrics and think to themselves yeah that sounds about right i also think that many people have a difficult time believing that these young men are capable of learning and mastering a highly sophisticated complex art form. And so if you don't see them as artists then it's difficult to read their lyrics and hear figurative language, you know, to hear metaphor. We are, but if you begin with the assumption that these young men are not bright enough to produce something that's this sophisticated, then the fallback, the obvious position from there is, oh, well they're just rapping about things they've done.
1: Now let that assumption sink in that these men are not sophisticated enough, not creative enough.
2: Okay, but can I play devil's advocate for a minute, here? uh,
1: The devil is a lie, but go off.
2: Okay, so here's the paradox, right? I mean, the thing is that there really is an expectation a lot of times within hip hop that you be about what you rap about. Hmm. That's an expectation that no artist in any other genre face. Am I right? Yeah,
1: but the line between artistic license and authenticity when it comes to using rap lyrics is one that prosecutors love to blur for a jury, especially a jury that holds inherent bias against the genre in the first place. But this idea that all rappers are basically just criminals who go in the booth and dry snitch on record, it's really so absurd that it's almost laughable. First things first,
6: I do not care that you're a multi-platinum selling rapper, Gun Rack.
2: That's Keegan-Michael Key from Comedy Central's Key & Peel, playing a suit-and-tie detective interrogating Jordan Peel, who's in the role of a stereotypical gangster rapper named Gun Rack.
1: Yeah, the sketch is called Rap Album Confessions.
2: Yep, and it's exactly as advertised. I killed Darnell, yeah, I shot him with my knife. I shot him nine times, 9 p.m. on the dime. And by the way, it was November 9th. Now he's practically rapping how the murder went down word for word on tape and the detective knows he's got him but then Gumrak looks at the detective with a straight face and says that don't mean nothing. I got a vivid imagination.
3: The name of the album is I Killed Darnell Simmons. It's a concept album. A concept. That's a picture of
8: you. A picture of you. And behind you is Darnell Simmons' body.
1: Now, this is comedy, but the reality is hip-hop's creative license is being revoked by the justice system every day. No other genre is plagued or policed by the expectation that artists walk it like they talk it.
2: Or rap it,
4: or sing it.
1: Exactly. Like Ice-T said, it's freedom of speech. Just watch what you say.
4: This is not a First Amendment issue, with racial implications it is a racial issue with first amendment implications it's a new permutation on a very very old dynamic the tactic of introducing lyrics as autobiography in order to put somebody in prison that's a new tactic Uh, but the fact that we see rap being targeted and black expression being targeted that is nothing new Uh, black expression um, sends shivers through white America still, it seems.
2: Yeah, black folk have always been feared and fetishized as outlaw figures in popular culture. It predates rap, goes back at least as far as the legend of Stagger Lee. Now, Stagger Lee, he was a bad man. He wanted the whole round world to know. Yeah, Stagger Lee, the original thug of American folklore long before Tupac got it tatted across his torso. Now Stagger Lee, Lord and Billy Lyon Now, as the story goes, Stagger Lee Shelton was a St. Louis scalawag who murdered a man in 1895 for snatching his Stetson hat.
0: He said, Stagger Lee, Stagger Lee, please don't take my life Says I got two little babies and a darling loving wife He's a bad man Oh, cool, Stagger
2: Lee. Eventually, he died in prison. But mythologized in song, man, he became the trickster god of the 20th century. And the song Stagger Lee would end up being recorded over 400 times by folk and blues
3: artists. Oh,
4: And it's told in rhymed form from the first person perspective. It's violent. It's it's funny at times. It's hypersexual. It reads like gangster rap.
2: I said, Say, motherfucker, do you know who I am? He said, Hell no, nigga, I don't give
4: a
3: goddamn.
4: But it's over a hundred years old.
1: Take all that and mix in the urban fiction of Donald Goins and Iceberg's Limb
4: the urban underworld where hustlers and pimps reign supreme. And so that that's another artistic tradition that rappers are are drawing from.
1: Pull in some inspiration from the black arts movement on one end and black blaxploitation films on the other.
4: The idea is to say, you know, what you're seeing here is really just, um, you know, in some cases, centuries um, of evolution of an art form. And so you need to start from that perspective and understand that even if individual rappers can't tell you all of the antecedents of their art, they exist, and it's a very, very rich, complex tradition that they're drawing from.
1: A rich, complex tradition that hip-hop is adding to, that's now used in court against them.
4: Yeah, and this is the tradition
2: that Mac stepped into in No Limit. I and mean, even as he leaned into those gangster tropes, there was still a spirit of resistance in his music. You hear it a bit in his first No Limit album, but man, it really starts to cook on the follow up World War III. Take this song, Battle Cry.
3: Man, that's
2: some new millennial blues right there. Almost 20 years after the message, you hear Mac echoing the same pain,
4: the same reality. It's like nothing's changed. In any moment that you have, particularly a young black man, not only embracing stereotypes and taboos, but doubling down on them, which is really what gangster rap often is, even if you have that in the most sort of trite, recycled form, I do think that at some level that is still performing uh, a kind of resistance. And that resistance,
2: it flows through almost every form of Black American art, from work songs heard on the plantation to the prison camp.
3: Oh, murder, murder, murder. Murder, murder, murder. Kill, kill, kill. Kill, kill, kill,
2: me, kill. Bury me, bury me. Soldier. bury me a soldier but
3: beside my steel I can't wait until the battle wait until the
1: battle this episode was written by Matt Ozug, Rodney, and me Sydney Madden
2: Michael May edited this one it was produced by Matt Ozug and Dustin DeSoto.
1: With help from Adelina Lancianese, Sam Leeds, and Babette Thomas. Our engineer is Josh Newell.
2: Senior supervising Producers are Rachel Neal and Nigerie Eaton.
1: And shout out to the bigwigs, Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman.
2: Original music by Casa Overall. Dope artist, y'all definitely should check him out. Additional scoring by Romteen Ara Bluey. Appreciate you folks.
1: Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. Our fact checker is Will Chase.
2: And thanks to everybody who lent their time and expertise on this one, especially Andrea Dennis and Eric Nielsen. They wrote the book on this.
1: Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to follow along with the music you heard in this episode, check out the Louder Than a Riot playlist on Apple Music and Spotify Now. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org.